and welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Alex. And I'm Jan. And the topic for this episode is working memory. Uh, So working memory is just a form of short-term memory where you can hold something in your mind for a little bit. Um, And we're going to talk about the neural underpinnings of that, kind of the findings about what neurons are doing, the experimental findings. And then we're also going to talk about uh, some computational models of working memory to explain those neural findings. So for this, we read a set of dual perspectives in the Journal of Neuroscience. So these were published in 2018, and they are, I guess, I, I hadn't seen this in um, the Journal of Neuroscience before, but I guess they allow people to write a perspective on the same topic, like groups of people that have opposing opinions or thoughts on the topic. So what we read was the first one is called Persistent Spiking Activity Underlies Working Memory. And the first author of that one was Christos Constantinitis. And then the second one is Working Memory, Delay Activity, Yes! Exclamation point. Persistent Activity, Maybe Not. And the first author on that was Michael Lundquist. Um, so those kind of offer these two different ideas about how working memory can work because as it turns out, we're kind of in a upheaval time of the study of working memory it seems like uh, people are challenging the traditional view and we will explain what that view is in a moment Uh, we also read a short review called working models of working memory which is a list of uh, computational models that have been proposed for understanding working memory and that was by Amri Barak and Misha Sodix Um, so we can get into the traditional perspective on working memory that was kind of laid out in the first of these uh, dual perspectives. I keep wanting to call them <laughs> dueling perspectives, like there's like pistols or something. Oh, I thought, I thought they were dueling perspectives, but they're dual perspectives. Yeah, okay. they're D-U-A-L yeah. as in two. I saw that A. Yeah, <laughs> it, would, it would make just as much sense if they yeah, were yeah. dueling. Um, so, but yeah, I like this concept of publishing arguments in a way, or publishing, you know, explicitly uh, describing disagreements in print. I think it's helpful for the field. Mm -hmm. I don't know how helpful it is for the individual people who do it. (laughs) I don't know if, like, people get mad at you if you uh, are very explicit. I think they're signing up for it. They probably enjoy it. I hope so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, yeah. So the first of these kind of puts forth what I would say is the traditional view of how working memory works. And they also give a definition of it. So they say it's the ability to maintain and manipulate information in the mind over a span of seconds. And I think a common example, like when I was learning it, is the idea that you read a telephone number and then you hold it in your mind long enough to dial it. But that's like not a modern example. (laughs) I feel like people don't have to um, hold telephone numbers in their mind anymore because you can just like click on your phone and it dials it. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm like, not sure if there is a modern example of working memory. That wow, that's deep. Like we don't <laughs> we don't use our working memory anymore. <laughs> but I guess what makes working memory different from long term memory uh, is that usually long term memory is thought of as um, changes in um, in the synaptic weights, uh, which changes like the attractor of the recurrent network. And working memory should be more flexible than that. Yeah, exactly. Like, and so we can, I guess, just go directly into the standard model, which is this setup where you uh, are storing something in working memory, and the neural underpinnings of that is that there are neurons that just have maintained higher firing rates or different firing rates than normal for the whole time that that is being sustained in memory. 
Um, and the experimental setup that studies this or that is used to study this is usually an eye movement task where usually a monkey, but I guess they've probably done it in humans too, um, is sitting in front of a screen and then there's a flash in a certain location. Um, like a flash of light in a certain location and then the screen is blank um, for up to a second or two maybe and then um, there's some cue that's given to the monkey that tells it that it should make an eye movement to where that flash happened so during that whole time it has to store in its working memory the location of that flash um, until it's told that it can make the eye movement to that flash so um, in a way it's like conceptually simple working memory because it's just like like you were given something and you're just supposed to hold on to it. But the reason that it's challenging is because neurons don't usually keep firing when they're not getting input. So like yeah. the fact that the flash in that location is not on the screen during the delay period, that's what makes working memory hard because neurons have to hold on to that information when they're not receiving it. And um, this was first, uh, this neural activity was first found in, 19, in the 1970s in these kind of um, eye movement tasks. And so another thing that they talk about is the idea that the neural activity is specific to the thing that's being remembered. So like the location where the flash was, there will be a neuron that will kind of prefer that location and will fire very strongly when the flash was in that location. And there'll be other neurons that don't fire strongly for that location, but have a different location that they like. And so that's the idea of the memory, the neural activity of the memory being specific. But I think in the very first paper that showed this kind of delay firing activity, it wasn't actually specific. So like all the neurons um, in that area they're recording from were just firing? Or the neurons were firing, I don't know if it was all the neurons, but of the neurons that did have sustained activity, they didn't fire differently for different locations. Mm -hmm. So it was just like memory is happening, but they couldn't actually read out what the memory was from looking at the oh, pattern of firing. Right. But since then, there's obviously been a lot of studies where they do find specific yeah. patterns. So maybe there's just like they weren't looking at enough neurons or something like that. I think that's also representative of um, maybe a trend within working memory, but also within neuroscience in general, looking from like a single neuron tuning curve point of view to a more population like encoding point of view. But maybe this is something we'll get into later. Yeah. And another thing that comes up here that comes up a lot in neuroscience is that according to this first perspective paper, this kind of sustained delay activity has only been found in primates. So they found it in single neuron recordings in monkeys and also in humans, um, single neuron recordings, which is a rare thing to be able to get, but they did find it there. But apparently it hasn't, they said that in rodents, the sustained activity hasn't been found, but like tylene has, where like Neurons are firing at different times during the delay. Yeah, but it was in the same area that in the sort of analogous area where his frontal cortex. Of... Yeah, we should say that this is normally this activity was originally found and is frequently studied in the uh, prefrontal cortex, particularly in lateral prefrontal cortex or dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Um, but that's another thing that's kind of up in the air. Some people say that that's not uh, really where the important information is being stored, but uh, like sensory cortex could be storing it. So if yeah. you're remembering something visual, there could be areas of visual cortex that show this sustained activity, even though traditionally that's not how we think of sensory cortices yeah. as having that kind of sustained activity. So there's a debate about where it happens as well. But also, I mean, how good is um, the working memory of mice? That's a good point. <laughs> I mean, they can do the tasks that they're doing when they study it, but I think it actually is... like, But the training time might be insane 
<laughs> yeah. yeah 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 so just because they got to it if it took them like a year to figure it out and they do it every day and they're super overtrained like what does that say about like are we actually studying a normal working memory system in yeah. rodents i know also this is a point that um the second of these perspectives makes in particular some people don't like the idea that the storing of a planned motor action like that shouldn't be counted as working memory so in the example that i gave where there's a flash somewhere on a screen and you have to remember that location in order to make an eye movement to it you could say oh you're remembering the location or you could say you're holding on to a motor plan to make an eye movement to that location which is different than just like storing the information so in, like the telephone number example you're just like storing the information actually that would be a motor plan too <laughs> um, but, but that's a really good point because like in the very simple example um uh, you could just, I don't know, like have one eye, like you just squint the the eye of the side that you have to saccade to a little bit, right? And then this is a really stupid example, <laughs> but, but then you don't actually have to have any like neural. working memory, any neural representation of the working memory. I think this is what subsequent experiments were trying to get away from this issue. So I, th- I think that's a really good point. Yeah, but I think there's, there's also like this, I think you can make a similar criticism of saying oh you have to hold like the most recent sort of sensory input in in the neural activity as well as opposed to uh i mean if you you know if you see like uh the, the location of a stimulus or something that's maybe some sort of sensory input right but is it really just um maintaining that sort of sensory uh sort of perception in the sensory cortex or are you doing something are you putting it somewhere storing it somewhere else that can then be manipulated by some sort of higher area yeah, like the the placing working memory in prefrontal cortex makes sense in a way because it's kind of thought of as an interface between sensory inputs and motor outputs. So like the yeah. idea that that's where you would find this kind of delayed activity where you're trying to hold on to something about the sensory input in order to use it in the future to make a motor output. It makes sense. And I mean, to me, if it's storing a motor plan or whatever it is, the point is you have sustained activity for... Um, a period of time that goes way beyond what like a neuron on its own could sustain its own activity for so it's like some mechanism is keeping the memory in mind and whether it's like a memory which is really just like I'm about to move my arm and I'm just waiting for someone to tell me or I'm about to move my eyes it's still a specific thing that you have to hold on to for the amount of time that the experimenter tells you you have to so it feels like it still has whether it's a motor preparation or like storing something in memory um, the examples they give is uh, match non-match tasks where you see something and then there's a delay and then you see another thing and you have to respond if it was a match or not because then you can't be planning your motor activity yeah. in advance because you have to wait until you see the next thing so you're really just holding on to to the input but I don't know in either case there's still something interesting happening that you can hold on to something but it's not necessarily happening in PFC or even in sensory regions like it could I, I don't know I don't I don't really agree with that I think that uh, if it's motor preparation I don't know. I think that's very that's very different phenomenon than working memory. If you already like you don't even necessarily have the idea or the image in your head, right? You just have like some tension in in like one side of your body or something as you're starting to uh, move. I mean, it's eye movement, so saccades. But so you're really like pushing it into the body, like. I think a lot of people think maybe like premotor cortex is showing sustained neural activity during that time or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but I'm saying you can't tell. You can't tell if it's um, it could. I'm yeah. I'm using the example um, in which you're like tensing up one side of your body to show that it's something that you can't dissociate whether it's even happening like really within 
um, within the brain, except for like the kind of more readout uh, or the more motor cortexy part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if it really was, although I, I would say even if it were that like your muscles were tensing up in a certain way and that was the only place that it was stored, like what is causing them to be? Okay, but here's an example. What if like you just put like you do, you don't you just move your right arm like a little bit and then you stop and then like your whole brain is not doing anything related to that the activity anymore. Yeah, no, I agree. But in the studies of and the then, eye movement task, you're not allowed to move your eyes from the central point until they say. But you're allowed to move your body. You would, yeah. So, so you're should. saying that the monkeys are moving their, potentially could like could be moving their fingers, like saying, oh, like my rightmost finger is like, if I have to move it to the right, I'm just going to do that. And we can't, we're not sure if that's actually happening or not. I'm saying that that is a potential confound mm that you can't get rid of with that type of task, but that goes away when you have a match yeah, task. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so you might as well use match. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I mean, like, probably that's not what monkey... I mean, they're smart, but, like, that's kind <laughs> of... not that smart. That's and kind also, of a... I don't know that, if that's even smart. That's just, yeah. like, a weird way to solve that. But I think there still is that issue of um, the motor preparation that I do think is a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but, yeah, so we should say that this kind of <clears throat> delayed activity uh, studies do find it in these match... Uh, tasks where there isn't a possible motor preparatory part to it at all. Um, so the idea is that there really is something happening in terms of sustaining the information inside your brain and not like moving your fingers to <laughs> remember it. So um, maybe to get into a little bit more specifics of what the studies have found. So in the, the eye movement task, which is um, still what's used a lot, Uh, The first perspective says that up to 70% of all the cells will show this kind of delay activity. um, And it starts after the visual stimulation is on. And um, like, so it turns on and then turns off and then the delay activity starts and then um, it goes away at the time of the eye movement. So it's really aligned with what you would expect to see if this is responsible for storing the memory. Um, and they also said that a quarter of the total population of neurons that they record from has selective activity during the, de- during the delay, meaning that it's encoding something about the spatial location. And an important thing, at least something that to me is important for talking about like what actually is the functional role of this, how can we say that this is what memory is, is that there are studies that have shown a strong relationship between this activity and the strength of this sustained firing during the delay with the performance of the animal on the task. So on trials where the delay activity is really diminished or it isn't there, the animal will probably make an error on the task. So like they'll look at the wrong location. They won't have remembered it correctly. Yeah. Um, And they also talk about, um, so basically prefrontal cortex is like a big area and we frequently just like speak of it as an area, but it has very diverse firing. And so the, there are parts that might be more inclined to encode spatial information, like when you're looking in a certain direction, and other parts that might be more responsible for um, like the match to sample tasks where you have to just like remember something visual. So you have to be careful about which part of the prefrontal cortex you're looking in when you're looking for this sustained activity. But generally, the, the, they find that the sort of most selectivity is in the area that you would expect. So if it's like a task involving moving your eyes to a certain region, then the area of PFC that projects to like the motor region is going to be more selective. Yeah, so like you can just get the normal tuning of these areas, like what do they normally respond to, 
by looking at their responses when you just like show an image or something like that or when the animal yeah. is going to make an eye movement or something like that um so you can see what they normally respond to and that gives you some sense of their function which is then yeah related to um where you would find the sustained activity and we've been talking a lot about um, like visual stimuli and images, but there's also people have used different sensory modalities. You can have working memory for auditory cues or for um, vibration stimuli, like you put a, a vibration on the finger and you encode the frequency of the vibration. Um, there's also working memory for like rules or more abstract things or categories they talk about, uh, quantities, so just like anything. Thing, any part of a task where you might need to hold it in mind for some time, you can probably find neurons, presumably in prefrontal cortex, that have some sort of activity that looks like it's encoding that. That's, I guess, what I think is one of the more interesting parts uh, of working memory research that I didn't really see much in these two perspectives or the review really. Like in the, so in the definition of working memory that you give, it's the ability to maintain and manipulate information in mind over a time span of seconds. And they don't really talk about the manipulation part. They talk about the maintaining part like a lot, and this is what the whole debate is about. But I think the manipulation part is quite interesting and could add like a lot of sort of experimental constraints that I haven't really seen much here. But I guess we can talk about that later as well. But then isn't isn't the manipulation like a separate question about a separate cognitive question than the working memory side of it? Well, if it's about if it's rules, if it's like some sort of rule that you have to do, that's somewhat that's manipulating uh the input in some way right yeah but then that's like two functions that the animal has to do working memory plus whatever this other cognitive function is yeah we think of it as two functions but maybe the brain implements it as yeah no that actually that's a good point yeah Yeah, so uh working memory could be like i don't know um what's the word like more redundant if it's reproduced in different areas yeah i think that's a really good point actually yeah, I mean, and if you're going to manipulate the information in working memory, whatever uh, circuit mechanism that's storing it needs to be compatible with the ability to manipulate it. Yeah, So exactly. you do have to be thinking about that when you're thinking of how it could work, is like, how could it be manipulated? And actually, this reminds me, so we were saying how this has mostly been found and studied in primates, but actually one of the like very nice findings has come out of fruit flies. Basically, the the way that working memory is studied in fruit flies is uh, in terms of heading direction. So um, basically, there's like a part of the fly brain where the firing of neurons relates to like the direction that the animal is facing in as it's moving. Um, so it's like you can think of it as like a 360 thing where like whatever direction the animal is facing in, there will be neurons on this like circle that um, represent the, the direction it's going in and it needs that information to navigate. So it knows like I'm walking this direction for this long, so now I'm in this place. Um, so that system has been studied in the fly brain and it's working memory because you can like have the, uh, the fly face a certain way and then just like make the room go dark, like take away all its sensory input, and these neurons will continue to fire and continue to represent the direction it's moving. And I think even when it like turns in the dark and stuff, there's they'll update. And so this updating from like, I'm facing this way, now I'm moving my legs in such a way that I'm going to be facing another way, like that's the working part of working memory. That's the uh, manipulating part of working memory. So you need to have a model that can account for the fact that the activity is sustained in the absence of inputs, but then when it gets the right kind of input that tells it that it's changing its direction, the activity can be moved appropriately. 
Where was that? Go from Janelia, I think, right? Yeah, that was done at Janelia. I meant wearing the wearing the fly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> what does it matter wearing the fly? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I looked it up. The ellipsoid body, and it's in the shape of a ring, and it encodes this ring attractor model. Yeah. Some other findings uh, in the primate uh, that lead to you know like a causal understanding of working memory. So we've been talking about kind of like neural correlates. It's shown like you can see that these neurons have this um, sustained firing during the delay, but does that mean that they're causally important for memory? And so one element of that is the fact that you can correlate errors with. Um, the activity, the sustained activity, like there's a relationship between the performance and the activity. Um, They also talk about, in this first perspective, that if you cool the prefrontal cortex, which in a previous episode we discussed how cooling the brain um, is a methodology for uh, kind of turning a particular area off. Um, So if you cool the prefrontal cortex, that can uh, impair working memory performance. So that's another kind of causal relationship. How do they actually cool it, do you know? There's like, well, they don't do it in humans. I mean, they do yeah, it in yeah. monkeys. There's like, uh, you should listen to the episode. <laughs> no, there's like a metal ring that they put in the area and they just like run, not liquid nitrogen, something very cold okay. through it. And yeah, it just like cools it down. But then it's reversible. So you can do like semi-fine timescale experiments where you like turn a brain area off and then turn yeah. it back on and see what happens. There's no permanent damage from that? I mean, I guess I should just listen to this, but I'm just out of curiosity. You can take this out. I'm oh, absolutely. curious. Absolutely. so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm sure that there is over time. Yeah. When you, if you're like freezing neurons and then thawing them, I, I don't think you have to freeze them completely. You're just slowing down the processes so that they can't really spike. Like they're working on a totally different time scale. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that over time it's bad for them. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then, so the last bit, like, a, you know, like maybe like a little wrinkle in the, this story about sustained activity is the fact that. Uh, it's not actually like completely sustained over the period that the memory is being held. So it's not like this neuron goes from like firing like three times a second up to 10 and then it's just at 10 the whole time. So um, it can be more like it starts high um, and then it kind of fades. And by the time that the monkey is like giving its readout or making its eye movement or whatever, it's like almost back to, to baseline activity or something like that. So there can be ramping up, there can be ramping down, there can just be a kind of like slight changes over time um in the course of the trial which is like a little it complicates the story a little bit but in this first perspective they make the point that a lot of times even if there's these ramps up or down um the firing still maintains the order such that it's still encoding the stimulus so you have like a neuron that fires high if you get like um, a high frequency vibration stimulus even if it ramps down, as it's ramping down on the trials where it has its preferred stimulus, it'll still be firing higher than on the trials where it has its non-preferred. So it's just like a uniform ramp up or down, no matter what the stimulus is. But the ordering for different stimuli is still preserved such that it's still encoding the information. Also, even if you have more complex time-varying firing rates than just ramping up or ramping down, um, there's work by uh, like Chklovsky and Sheldrickman um, that shows that uh, from the Dakota point of view, that may not really change anyway. So it could still be representing persistent activity. This is my favorite point in this like podcast. So that's why I'm bringing this up again. <sighs> Both of the perspectives, I think, reference some study where there's like a subpopulation of the neurons that remains similar enough over time that you could always read out from that one. Is that the work you're talking about? Well, it's no, it's um, it's so they're saying 
in these papers that the um, information could be distributed over the population in a way that if you look at any the single um, firing rates of the neurons, then they might be doing this weird like temporal uh, have this weird temporal uh, profile um, that you wouldn't necessarily associate with the more classic ideas of persistent firing um, in um, these really early studies of working memory. So this is a point that was said in the uh, in the paper that was for persistent activity. Uh, this is a point they raised, and this is contrast with in the paper or sorry the the dual perspective that was against possibly against um, persistent activity was saying that. Um, on a trial by trial basis, you see these really sparse, like kind of uh, not persistent activity um, on a single neuron level. Uh, but uh, they, I didn't see them respond to that point that that doesn't necessarily mean that at the population level there isn't a persistent representation. Um, and even in the response to that, uh, even though this point was raised in the original perspective, I didn't see that raised again in the response to the other anti-persistent activity uh, paper. And that was my favorite point. (laughs) (laughs) But so, okay, but if there's no, like, ramping up or ramping down or sort of, like, temporal dynamic to it, then how does, how is there a limited sort of um, time period in which you actually can hold something in your working memory? Are there different theories for that? Is it, like, eventually you just get distracted by another uh, stimulus at some stage and that's the limit of working memory or is it actually to do with the network dynamics that can only sort of sustain itself for a certain time it could be like the time scale of the network in that case no or just the time scale which you can support that kind of working the like uh, persistent activity like there's like a sudden sort of dying off of the persistent activity that's that's not seen like in this sort of ramping down or am i kind of confusing two things no i mean it's a fair question and i don't think like even in the the standard models even if it were like the same thing the whole time like the question is what causes it to go away mm. um and i feel like the the yeah the answer is more something about distractibility even if you are just like sitting in a dark room like trying to remember this for so long like your brain is going to be doing other things and eventually uh something's going to interfere with that circuit that's trying to maintain that kind of like by whatever means it's trying to maintain it there will be something that will eventually interfere yeah yeah but that's i mean it's a nice point that the the mechanisms of the failure of working memory can also give as much a clue as yeah yeah, because I guess in the other dual perspective, you know, they, they kind of argue that a weakness of this sort of persistent activity one is that it's, what word do they use? Labile, which just, I guess they really mean um, easy to perturb uh, due to sort of other stimuli, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe let's switch over to yeah. the oh. other one. Um, but I think maybe it would be helpful before we do that to explain a computational model that uh, supports this persistent activity uh, model of working memory. So the very classic, like for decades now, the way that people have understood and modeled working memory is with attractors. Um, And so what that means is basically you have like a neural circuit that the connections between the neurons are such that uh, they kind of self-sustain themselves. So you put in an input, it makes the neural activity go to some pattern and you can take that input away. And like the neurons, because they're all connected to each other, will keep firing in um, the, the appropriate pattern. And so that like completely mimics the experimental findings where you supposedly have neurons that just like keep firing the same way even without input. 
Um, so that's like this the standard attractor model, and like it's it's defined mathematically, like it's well studied mathematically. It comes from physics and stuff. Um, so you know you know it's good then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, but yeah, so it's like you can find a set of weights in a simulation of a neural network where they will have. Um, this kind of this property of sustained activity and we'll have attractors so it's like well grounded in that sense we know that it's possible but isn't that more of like a model of long-term memory because you need to change the weights every time you have a different like phone number that you know generations ago they had to remember um then i don't know it's that seems yeah so attractors are they're used to model both long-term memory and short-term memory um because it is the case that like the location of the attractor, the type of firing patterns that it maintains are defined by the weights. So you have to learn the weights. You have to like know how the neurons should be connected in order to support um, a certain amount of activity. So yeah, you have to get the, like, the standard model is that you're exposed to the same thing over and over and then the weights in the network update as a result of that. And so like things that were like shown together, like if neurons were activated together, they'll fire together and they're wired together. And yeah, you can learn the attractors. And then once you do that, you put in an input, the network like goes to this attractor and you can take the input away and it will stay there. So it, it's both long-term memory and short-term memory or, that they're used to, to model. But for a short term, um, I mean, I don't actually know that much about working memory. But for short term, I, I usually think more of like uh, bump attractors. Yeah, but that's still an attractor. So, yeah. So yeah, but the, it's not like synap- you're not changing the synaptic weights to, yeah. to embed the, you know, the attractor dynamics mm-hmm. within it. But you get the synaptic weights from somewhere. Like the synaptic weights have to be a certain way for that to yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, like a bump attractor is like the, um, the heading direction in the fly. Like you have like a ring and you want activity to exist in some place on that ring to represent like in this case the direction that the fly is moving in and you can put um, like an input that activates some location on this like ring of neurons if you think of it as like a circle Um, and then the connections between those neurons are such that they'll keep themselves firing and usually the way that works is that you have neurons near each other excite each other and neurons that are a little bit far away inhibit each other and that's like enough to like keep the activity going at a certain spot on the ring or in the population or whatever and that goes into the difference between discrete and continuous attractors so a bump attractor is like a continuous attractor a discrete attractor is usually what's talked about in long-term memory and that's like you, it wouldn't be like on a ring. It wouldn't have any like structure to it. There's just like a pattern of neural activity that can be sustained. And then there's also like a completely separate unrelated pattern of neural activity that could be sustained. And those would be like two different discrete attractors. Um, whereas yeah, the continuous ones that are usually more associated with working memory, it's like you can move between them. So in the case of the fly, you have some location, you get an input, and it moves it to, it moves that bump to a different location on the ring. This is very hard to explain without visuals yeah it's like that the dimension of the continuity gives another dimension along which you can encode the input yeah but yeah so the point is just like that's been the standard model for a long time that it's attractors and we can understand them mathematically and they like do the job and so like that's what it is but then recently i feel like it's somewhat recent like in the past few years there have been like experimental findings or like kind of highlighting of things that maybe were there all along that put a wrinkle into this story of like it's all attractors. So it's easy to sort of sort of visualize or imagine how an attractor model would work well in like 
the, the sort of task we talked about with the monkeys where you have a fixed location um, because it's just one thing that you're sort of keeping a, a persistent activity representing. But then if it if you're you know doing a sequence memorization like it's I think the the perspective sort of cited some things which try to like do these things in attractor models but I'm not familiar with them. And I imagine it might get kind of tricky to 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 do these things in attractor models like have multiple bumps in this kind of thing. So yeah, so it's certainly the case that the second perspective makes this critique yeah. of this kind of attractor model the the critique that it can't hold multiple things yeah, yeah. at once and also that it's distractible. The idea that it can't hold multiple things at once, I feel like is in line with like the historical way that they were studied. They're usually studied in a way where you just have to hold on to one thing and you just mm. have to maintain one pattern of neural activity that would represent one thing. I think the idea that they are subject to distractions is not... I mean, one of the selling points of attractors is yeah, that they're exactly. not subject yeah. to distractions. <laughs> like The point of an attractor, like the name attractor, is that like activity is attracted to that point. Like You can start not at that point and it will go to it. So if you're at that point and you have that pattern of activity happening in the brain and you like perturb it a bit via some input, it might go off for a bit, but if it's really an attractor, it's probably going to come back to that point. So it shouldn't be distractible. I don't really understand the first point because you could just have like a plane instead of a line and then you have two or you just have a, you know, a hyperplane and then you have an N. For multiple. For multiple. Rep- yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And also it really depends on how you interpret the pattern of activity. I could say this pattern of neurons firing means the color blue or I could say this pattern of neural firing means a blue square in the upper right quadrant of my right. visual field. Like what does it mean? What does the pattern mean? And does it encode multiple things is like up for debate. Yeah, so that's that's true. But I guess um, in tasks where you have to do the ordering as well, okay, how would you? Is is the ordering also just another plane in which you? It just do gets that? higher yeah, dimensional. Gets higher. But... Okay. So Fair the enough. the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like sequence memory and stuff, which yeah. is like the telephone example. Um, it does seem like based on that third paper that we read, the like list of a bunch of different computational models of of working memory. It made it seem like basically anything that you could need to do with a tractor, someone has worked out a model of how you could do it. And like whether those models are super realistic or fit with the data, I don't know. But it seems like everything has been done, at least in theory. Okay. Okay, but so this second perspective, what is it trying to say? I guess the title tells us a lot. They believe in <laughs> delay activity, but aren't so sure about persistent activity. Emphatically. <laughs> but yeah, so they start out with these critiques from like a like a more normative perspective, like, oh, well, the attractor sustained activity model, like it has these flaws. And we've kind of talked about whether those are really actually, like if it's true that it has those flaws, I would also say like working memory isn't perfect. So sometimes the way that they were talking about how the other model is flawed, it's like, well, maybe that's accurate though. <laughs> like working memory does have a limited capacity and it doesn't last for very long and it is distractible to some extent. So, I mean, that's an issue. Like you really have to get into quantification of like, is this matching the behavioral data or not? Because you don't want to make a model of working memory that's perfect because it's not perfect in biology. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like their thing is that... There isn't actually sustained activity from individual neurons on individual trials. So they're claiming that most of the studies that have looked at this have averaged the activity of neurons over different trials, over different like runs of the same experiment. 
in order to find this sustained activity. But if you looked at an individual neuron and an individual instance of working memory, um, you wouldn't see just like higher firing for the whole time. You'd see like sparse bursts of firing um, that have silence in between. That was my understanding of what their overall claim was. And we should say that the first perspective does address this critique population activity right there's oh, the yeah. response that you're not supposed to be looking at individual neurons in a way um, that was one response but they also make the claim that you don't see higher trial to trial variability during the delay and that is like a prediction that would come from this idea that it's like sparse bursts or something i think that that was a claim that they made the the original authors the perspective the first perspective yeah. the one that's in favor of persistent activity. But I think there was a counterclaim then by the other ones anyway. They they both sort of disagree on that point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like like many of the points like you, you're in, you know you have to I guess read the original papers or something to find. That is what I felt <laughs> through a lot of this. <laughs> and they also say that I think not only is it sparse bursts the idea is also that there are multiple neurons that should be bursting together. So there's like synchrony of neurons. It's not like each individual neuron is doing its own thing. There are synchronized bursts across neurons. And the way that they, or a big part of how they look at it is through um, analyzing oscillations in the uh, local field potential, um, which we have an episode on oscillations as well, where we argue about what the local field potential is if it is anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they're looking at the, the frequency spectrum in, in the local field potential, and they claim that there are changes in gamma, so like very high frequency oscillations that um, are associated with working memory. So I didn't really get what kind of changes in gamma they were really talking about. Is it just higher power or... or I mean, for, at one stage, I thought like different gamma band, different like subparts of the gamma band had different sort of representations of the working memory, but then that was never really dwelled on. I don't. Do Do you know? Have you anyone? Has anyone read? I haven't read the original. Yeah. I can tell you what they say in this perspective, which at one part they say that gamma. I think they're referring to like power in the gamma band. So right. this amount of this gamma oscillations, these high frequency oscillations, is not stationary during the delay period, and they're um, conclusion from that is that that means that the firing of the neurons is sparse and periodic. And I don't know why that's the conclusion. Yeah. Um, but that, that was my understanding of what the claim was. So I think it was, they were, it's, it's about like the sort of circuit they had, I guess, which they showed in a model that like, if we have this sort of, what you talked about, sort of sparse transient neural representations in a model, then we expect high power gamma and this is what we see as well or something yeah the, well there were a few references to like yeah this is what would be predicted if so yeah. and so but i can't actually understand the direct link between the idea that gamma is not stationary they say it waxes and wanes mm. and that means that it's periodic because to me if it's like if it's periodic wouldn't you like want uh, an analysis of the the frequency to be stationary like the thing itself is oscillating, but the frequency should be stationary if it keeps oscillating at that frequency. So I don't know if it's like gamma isn't stationary, but other bands are. And so the it's oscillating at a different frequency. I wasn't sure what was meant by that. 
Oh, and they also talk about, so, yeah, so their thing is that there's, like, these bursts and it's oscillatory, and a benefit of that is related to this idea of storing multiple things at once. So they're saying that you can multiplex in this way of doing working memory, where um, at different phases of the oscillations, at different points of it, you could be encoding a different thing. So um, they say that one way of thinking about it is that there'd be gamma oscillations, like high frequency oscillations, where a different thing is encoded at each point of that oscillation. And then there's that's like riding on top of a slower, longer oscillation that repeats the thing. So it's like if you have to remember like four things, you're just like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Right. So yeah. you have like each thing has its own part in a high frequency and then it gets repeated on this lower yep. frequency. That has a certain element of intuitive sort of I can see that happening in the brain, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, but so the the thing that I didn't understand exactly, like I understand conceptually that that would be a way of encoding things, but then the mechanism of how that happens, they make reference to this idea of synaptic changes that happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like yeah. standard attractor models, the synaptic changes are like slow time scale. They're like how you learn something. And then when you're holding it in memory, they don't really change. Um, in this model, it's like, Every time you repeat it in your memory, it's like causing some like flash change in the strength between neurons such that it can be repeated again. Yeah. It's like each time this phase of the oscillation comes around, the fact that there's this trace left in the synaptic weights, that's going to like reactivate this particular memory. Presumably it's like short term potentiation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, yeah, but that is a question that comes up. I think the first perspective raises this critique yeah. that like the time scale of synaptic plasticity, like how fast the synapses can change, doesn't really align with the time scale of working memory. That's their claim that you, it's not fast enough. Really? Like, I mean, it, I mean, short-term plasticity, plasticity rather, can be quite fast. It's like hundreds of milliseconds. Um, is that not the time scale of working memory? That seems right to me. I think that they were making reference to like short-term plasticity on the scale of seconds so maybe they're just thinking about a different mechanism but working the time scale working memory also depends on like the number of things that you are remembering so i don't i don't know is that i'm not sure that that's predicted by this model by the the second one yeah um they say well i'm not sure if i don't remember if it was the second perspective that says this or the review of the models but the capacity, like how many things you could hold in your memory, would be a function of like how quickly you can activate each one. Yeah. Um, so it would be related to this like oscillatory thing because they say like in terms of the synaptic weight changes, their model in the second perspective is that you have to keep hitting it with this activity because otherwise the synapse will go back to normal. It's like really fast changes. Right. So it's like fast to change the way you want it to, but it's also fast to go back to normal. So that's why you have to keep doing yeah. this repetitive oscillatory like hit of the activity. Uh -huh. But the thing that I didn't understand is just how you know like what activity to create at each point in the phase to like reactivate. That wasn't clear to me. Well, it's also an attractor model style thing. It's just a, it's not kept in the dynamics of the neurons. It's kept in the dynamics of the synaptic weights instead. So is that what you mean or is it something else? I don't know what I mean because I right. don't know what they meant. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, so yeah, the question of like, could this oscillatory thing be also just an attractor, but an attractor where the neurons are like bursty or have some different properties or connected a different way? I think it could be. And I think that the review of the computational models um, refers to this kind of oscillatory phase locked 
um, encoding as an attractor model. It's like in the section on attractor models. Yeah. So I do think that it is an attractor in uh -huh. some way. Yeah. But I feel like this second perspective, it didn't speak of it that way. But yeah, maybe yeah. it's just agnostic to it. Yeah, I guess. Because, yeah, they even in the in the first perspective, they do talk about how synaptic plasticity um, in in their sense or in their case, they sort of added it on to their usual persistent activity model and showed that it sort of enhanced the I'm not sure if it was the capacity or the resistance. Actually, I think it was the resistance to perturbations um, for the same reason that the second perspective argued their, their model is more resistant, uh, which I think is quite interesting is that like, obviously, if you zap a local network attractor with some spikes, then that perturbs the spikes, but um, that's not going to perturb the synaptic weights unless it's a very correlated perturbation, I guess. Um, yeah, I also I thought that it was cool that um, adding the short-term plasticity made the attractor models more robust. Like, usually when you have to add that kind of biological detail, it's like, oh god, I hope the model still works. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't yeah. even expect it to work better. Yeah. So the fact that you could add that detail, which probably is happening on those timescales, mm -hmm. um, and it still works and it works even better, was pretty nice. Another thing I thought um, was also kind of neat was the claim that it was more metabolically more efficient to have this synaptic uh, plasticity sort of way of m maintaining the imprint as opposed to in the transient activity because spikes were more expensive than not spiking, essentially. But yeah, I mean, the, but the spiking activity is quite low anyway, so I'm not sure how much that actually saves, I guess. Yeah, especially in prefrontal cortex, spike, yeah. like the neurons are firing like four spikes a second yeah you yeah. know and not much more than that when they're encoding things is my understanding so yeah the the energy argument um i wasn't as sure about either also well i don't know i guess synaptic plasticity can't take that much energy to do but you have to consider yeah. like no, usually yeah chemical computation is i guess the whole argument for dendritic computation this kind of stuff is that it's energy efficient mm, um, yeah. although uh, it's kind of jarring from my point of view of thinking about how like very from a very self-centered perspective like a computational neuroscientist i think of uh neurons as like happy to spike but synaptic weights take some effort for the synapses to change their weights this is like a very computational theorist way of thinking about it um so i think those synapses must be exhausted all the time having to like constantly update and lose it and update it and lose it just to maintain working memory but presumably that's not how the brain works <laughs> or thinks about its synapses anyway uh-huh yeah well, it's how your brain thinks about its synapses. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the energy argument. I guess I understand the intuition that like spikes are the most expensive thing, like maintaining the, the right ion concentrations inside and out of the, the neuron is like really expensive energy wise. Um, but I, I, I never feel comfortable with my assumptions about energy costs. Yeah. Like, maybe building the proteins that you need to do synaptic plasticity also have some weird energy costs that we're not factoring in. Because in neuroscience, we just, like, blanket say spikes are expensive and not spiking is cheap. But, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it is true. But I just, you know, you got to be cautious when you're claiming one thing is less energy than another. Yeah. It's not just, okay, this is getting going to get into an argument on metabolic efficiency, but it's not just... Um, it's not just like the uh, the cost of a spike or the cost of anything else, but it's also a ratio between that and like how much information is transmitted in sure. some way or yeah. how much of the computation can be done. So I, I just have this feeling that in that trade-off, you can always find a cost function that makes you correct as a theorist. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah that's, I mean, so that's, sure, that's my un- yeah. that's my kind of you know squeamishness about um, metabolic efficiency. Not that I don't think is a very important subject. Yeah, and if we're talking also about this multiplexing idea where you're storing multiple things, then the neuron is going to end up firing a lot if at each phase it has its another thing to to fire. You know, it's going to have a burst or something at, at each phase for each different thing it's encoding. Whereas in the attractor model, the way that you encode multiple things is possibly just through having different subpopulations of neurons um, where they each encode their own things. So whether having like all the neurons in your network spiking a lot versus having um, only a subset of the neurons spiking, but you have more neurons in the network. I mean, that's something that have to be considered um, and, and worked out in terms of energy costs. Um, so another model that didn't come up in the perspectives, but came up, well, wasn't really highlighted in the perspectives, but came up in the review um, is this idea of like the encoding of the memory would be um, a pattern of neural activity that changes over time, but it doesn't have to be sustained activity. It just is a model where basically you have a bunch of neurons that are recurrently connected up to each other and you put in an input and just as a result of the, the recurrent connections amongst these neurons, they're just going to like have a trajectory over time that is somewhat specific to that input. So like the trace that this activity follows over time, you should be able to say what input came, even if like the neurons themselves look like they're just kind of going crazy and doing whatever. Um, so that was a that's like a theoretical model that has been put forth. Um, but the issue is then that like how do you read out information from that um, population if it's just kind of like going all over? Like technically, it it is following you know rules based on what its input was, but it's hard to to know what it's encoding if it's like changing so much over time. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of. I agree that it's not obvious how to read it out, but I, for for some reason I kind of feel like I think it might be easier to do, or th- there's like more potential for doing like actual computations or manipulations with the re- the representation um, of the working of whatever you're keeping in memory in the res- reservoir computing versus some of the more uh, sort of classic models. Um, I'm not sure why I'm saying that. I just feels like a lot of like but a lot of people lot say of, that about reservoir yeah there's a lot of know. there's a lot <laughs> of work to show that like um kind of chaotic or edge of chaos networks um you can yeah do many different types of computations on them um, yeah but and, has it been demonstrated yeah um in this context uh for working memory i don't know but i don't that doesn't seem surprising i mean it's kind of yeah, keeping yeah. a trace of the input and i do think that the i mean if you have kind of a constrained chaos that's like chaotic but mostly in some sub-dimensions then you could have a readout neuron that didn't have to change its weights yeah. in order to distinguish well that's related to something that they do say in the review which is that they did a study where they use like completely random connections in this kind of chaotic way and then compared to a structured network that's like an attractor where the mm-hmm. connections between the neurons are like really set to perform a certain way and then you can also like go somewhere in between where you like kind of train yeah, the network yeah. to be a little yeah. bit more structured and they say that the in-between area um right. the like semi-structured network captures the neural activity the best so it's like a mix of both yeah and everything yeah it seems like the sort of the fixed kind of attractor uh network might be good for the kind of tasks that are being studied at the moment um you know where you have to represent like a, a number of stimuli that you're already quite familiar with um, but maybe when it comes to doing abstract sort of rules or something then maybe something a, 
it's a bit more like reservoir computing might be better, but I'm just saying that. I have nothing to back that statement up. Yeah, no, re- I mean, Maybe I do. Cha- chaotic networks can do anything. Cool. Okay, well, there, there you forget. go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I also just want to talk about the psychological element of these two perspectives, like as like a like a meta conversation uh-huh. about... Um, I mean the experience of reading them. The experience of okay, reading them, right. and also like the the way that they were written. So I noticed um, there were two studies that stood out to me that were cited in both, and so I wanted uh-huh. to see how they were talked about in yeah. each one. <laughs> and so there was one um, that was talking about like the extent to which you could use the same decoder at different time points in the delay. So like standard model, you should be able to at any time point during the delay, you should be able to like read out what the memory is and it should be the same readout decoder that you could use at any time because like the activity is similar enough in the standard model. And so the one that's like in favor of persistent activity, like just kind of cites like, yeah, and it's like studies have shown that like the, the representation is relatively stable over time. And then the one that was against it was like, well, it showed that like during the, the very middle of the uh, delay period, it would be pretty stable, but still the readout quality was pretty low. So like they were highlighting yeah. different things. And then there was another study that was claiming that the gamma bursts were um, able to predict errors. Mm-hmm. So like we were talking about how the persistent activity is a good indication of whether the animal will perform correctly or not. And then in this oscillatory bursty model, you'd want to be able to predict errors as well. So they claimed that the gamma bursts could um, predict errors or were correlated with errors in the, the perspective that was for that. In the perspective that was against that, they say for that same study, that they weren't using gamma bursts during the delay period. They were using gamma bursts when the animal was responding um, to the the stimulus. So like when the delay was over and it was actually giving its response, right. that's the period of time where gamma, gamma bursts were correlated with error and they were correlated in the wrong direction than what yeah. the model would per, uh, predict, like yeah. this understanding of working memory. So that felt like a pretty big omission on the side of the people who were pro-gamma mm-hmm. bursts. Yeah. Did we did we go and check uh, the figures? I didn't. I didn't click on any original sources. <laughs> Shame. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Neither did I. You can edit that part out. Don't worry. <laughs> I think it's important people know. <laughs> um, but yeah, we can also talk about the experience of reading it. We were talking yeah. before we started recording about the order in which we read it and oh, how that true. impacted our um, feelings about it. I read the classical model first, which I was already familiar with, and I was like, yeah, cool, awesome. And then I read the second one, I was like, oh, no, they're, like, really poking holes in it. But then now I've, like, recovered a bit, and I still like the first model better. (laughs) You mean the classical one? Yeah, Yeah, and I do think it's also an important question to ask myself, is that that bias based on what I was taught first? Mm, And how much does that play into, um, like, stopping scientific progress that you just like the thing that you were taught first and also like the kind of cleaner model i think attractors are like a beautiful clean model of how working memory could work and so i want them to be true (laughs) (laughs) um so i think i i read the i think it was the same ordering as you although i had oh no i kind of ruined it because i had like a sneak peek of the of the second one first but then i didn't read it fully at all and the first one i thought oh man like this is there's no way that like the second one is going to be able to recover from this quite thorough takedown. But then um, I, f- I feel like the sort of the motivation behind um, both perspectives is kind of different. And it's that's not really addressed 
in the sort of dialogue. Basically, the second perspective is exp- explicitly saying we're not going we're not going to try to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, persistent activity is part of working memory, but it's not all that it is, and there are other elements that we need to like update basically. And the first perspective seem is kind of seems to take the attitude that the second one is actually attacking persistent activity as a model, which it kind of is, but isn't doing as much as as you would expect if you're reading the first one. So I think it's not really an either or kind of decision for a reader anyway, and it's presented by the first one as an either or decision. I read the second one first because it had the more interesting title, um, and I was like, yeah, this seems solid. And then I read the first one, and I was like, oh, no, they're right. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I think that's just because I'm I'm biased because I like population activity. No, but I mean, surely there are elements of the second one which are, I mean, like, I really like the synaptic, I'm biased. I like sort of the idea of having this imprint in the synaptic weights that can happen. Um, and I think that could be like a part of it and quite useful computationally. I just don't get this link to the LFP and why that has been so strongly stated. I think there are lots of like positive points about the sort of second model, which are maybe um, undermined by sort of trying to overstate the, the LFP link a bit. Any final thoughts? So I guess the way I feel about the, um, the paper that was critical of persistent activity um, is that I don't agree with what they were saying about like the temporal um, aspect of single neurons because I think at the population level, it could still be a persistent representation. But then the the point about um, gamma and beta oscillations, uh, I honestly just don't have the background to be able to assess that very well. So I'm, yeah, I'm just not not sure how to evaluate their model. So I'm just neutral on it, I guess. Yeah. um, So I guess that what I liked about uh, the second uh, one is that they sort of also talk about, they're a bit more forward looking maybe in what needs to uh, happen in sort of working memory research maybe so they one thing is that they say that this you know uh, much of the evidence for stable coding comes from simple tasks that only require memory for a single item over a blank delay um, and i think that's uh, a very important point so while simple tasks would favor the persistent activity model the model cannot explain all aspects of the observed activity during richer, richer tasks i'm not sure about that statement but um, i think that's an interesting point and kind of going back to the original definition, I really think that the manipulation or the computation is kind of underexplored here. And I think that could be a very powerful constraint on sort of working memory models. And actually, I'd imagine that the working memory model just depends on the task, basically. Like in the case of the fly, um, where it's doing a simple task, the attractor model works very well. But in the case of other things, it, it might. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I learned from the working models of working memory um, review is that there are a lot of models of working memory um, and so if there's so many different ways to mm. accomplish this then it, it kind of makes sense that there may be different uh, redundant ways of doing this in different you know yeah. for different computations uh, more specifically uh, not just within the PFC maybe I'm not sure yeah okay till next time thanks <laughs>